Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Keep the Faith brings you timely messages with in-depth spiritual analysis of current events in light of Bible prophecy so you can prepare for the coming of Jesus. Listen to what the news won't tell you. Here is another important message for our times. This is Pastor Hal Mayer. Dear friends, welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry once again. As religious liberty issues become more prominent and the subject of much controversy, we are going to examine the scriptures in regard to the book of Acts. The time of the early reign in history of God's church is similar to the time of the latter reign, so we can learn lessons from the book of Acts that apply to our time. What happened back then is a prophetic prototype of what will happen under the influence of the Holy Spirit during the latter reign. Let us pray. Dear Father in heaven, thank you for the revealing to us the secrets of the last days in your word. Please help us to apply them for salvation. Help us to understand where we are in the stream of time and send your Holy Spirit to us today as we study what happened during the early reign and the parallels to the latter reign. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew three sixteen and 17. Jesus came to John the Baptist to be baptized. Listen to what happened after he came up out of the water. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. And lo, the heavens were opened to, unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit. But this does not mean that he was not subject to temptations. In fact, he was going to have greater temptations than ever before. These would not be the average temptations that come, but they would be on his mission and his relationship to his father. Now we read from chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted forty days and forty nights, he was afterward and hungered. I was recently reading in the book Confrontation about Christ in the Wilderness of Temptation. This very good little book has insights that you don't find in other sources. Listen to this powerful insight that the author portrays. It is from page 41. Speaking of Satan, the author says, He found Christ in the desolate wilderness without companions, without food, and in actual suffering. His surroundings were most melancholy and repulsive. Satan suggested to Christ 
that God would not leave his son in this condition of want and suffering. He hoped to shake the confidence of Christ in his father, who had permitted him to be brought into this condition of extreme suffering in the desert, where the feet of man had never trod. Satan hoped that he could insinuate doubts as to his father's love, which would find a lodgment in the mind of Christ, and that under the force of despondency and extreme hunger, he would exert his miraculous power in his own behalf and take himself out of the hands of his heavenly father. When I read that, my thoughts extended to our own times. God's people will have to go through similar temptations. Satan will try to shake their confidence in God. Now compare this with the following statement from Great Controversy, page 621. This chapter is about the time of trouble. I'll read parts of this paragraph. The season of distress and anguish before us will require a faith that can endure weariness, delay, and hunger, a faith that will not faint, though severely tried. Those who are unwilling to deny self, to agonize before God, to pray long and earnestly for His blessing, will not obtain it. When waves of despair, which no language can express, sweep over the suppliant, how few cling with unyielding faith to the promises of God. Did you catch the similarities between Christ and his people at the end of time? Jesus went through a serious time of weariness and hunger. As he earnestly pled with God for power over the enemy, while he was in the wilderness, he did not appear as though he had just had the Holy Spirit upon him as a dove. Christ did not have companions to encourage and strengthen him while he was in the wilderness. He didn't have food. He was in actual suffering. So when God's people go through this at the end of time, they can take comfort and assurance in the fact that Christ has gone through this before them. While Christ went through this experience for the whole world, we only have to go through it for ourselves. But we have to stand alone. The people of God will not have friends and companions to encourage and strengthen them. For many will forsake them, and some will be separated from us by circumstances. They will only have Christ to cling to. They will have to suffer hunger as Christ did, though probably not as extreme. There will be inconveniences, obstacles, and pressure. The circumstances will be normally intolerable but are needful under God's providence because they will be designed to separate them from the world at the deepest level of their emotions. To all outward appearances, it will seem as though God has forsaken them. Christ's circumstances were appalling. He was living in the wilderness with no conveniences of home. He looked awful and very stressed. 
Satan came and taunted him with the idea that his claim to be the Son of God was not valid based on his circumstances. God's people will suffer the same mental anguish because of their circumstances and their appearance. It will seem as if they are all wrong and the, all the world is right. The world will have miracles, signs, and wonders manifesting themselves on their behalf and will claim the presence and blessing of God. God's people will be blamed for the catastrophes and disasters that fall upon the world. It will appear that everything is the opposite of what they thought it would be. Listen to this statement from Maranatha, page 209. I saw our people in in great distress, weeping and praying, pleading the sure promises of God, while the wicked were all around us, mocking us and threatening to destroy us. They ridiculed our feebleness. They mocked at the smallness of our numbers and taunted us with words calculated to cut deep. They charged us with taking an independent position from all the rest of the world. They had cut off our resources so that we could not buy or sell and referred to our abject poverty and stricken condition. They could not see how we could live without the world. We were dependent upon the world, and we must concede to the customs, practices, and laws of the world, or go out of it. And if we were the only people in the world whom the Lord favored, the appearances were awfully against us. They declared that they had the truth, that miracles were among them, that angels from heaven talked with them and walked with them, that great power and signs and wonders were performed among them. And this was the temporal millennium, which they had been expecting so long. The whole world was converted and in harmony with the Sunday law, and this little feeble people stood out in defiance of the laws of the land and the laws of God and claimed to be the only ones right on the earth. Christ suffered like this and even worse. Satan accused him of being the fallen angel from heaven. Listen to this from Confrontation, page 39. Satan told Christ that one of the exalted angels had been exiled to the earth, that his appearance indicated that instead of his being the king of heaven, he was the angel fallen, and that this explained his emaciated and distressed appearance. God's people will be told that they are the ones who are wicked because of their condition and circumstances, their stress. They will be taunted with the idea that they are lost because they have taken an independent track. When all the evidence seems to be with those who comply with the common good for society. And Satan is preparing for this now. Recently, we saw that those who refused certain medical interventions because they conscientiously were convicted that it was wrong for them, 
were accused of actually killing other people and that their abstinence was offensive to the rest of society. This was a test similar to what God's people will experience in the time of trouble. It was an experiment that showed the powers of the earth what they can do when the test comes again. World leaders and local governments will not give religious liberty to God's people. You can expect that what has happened in the past that gave the people religious freedom to worship as they choose and to believe what they thought was correct will be overturned and the exact opposite will be set in place. It's already happening in society. If you don't accept the predominant narrative, you will be canceled from society. Government leaders and people in general are already familiar with the process. The pandemic showed how this can work. The temptations of Christ are an example to us upon whom the ends of the world are come, where we can expect similar things to take place. This was indeed a temptation to Christ, but he cherished it not for a moment. He did not for a single moment doubt his heavenly Father's love, although he was bowed down with inexpressible anguish. Satan's temptations, though skillfully devised, did not move the integrity of God's dear Son. His abiding confidence in his Father could not be shaken. That's from Confrontation, page 41. Today, religious liberty has been largely removed from Western societies. Oh, there is still the semblance of religious liberty. But the common good is the prevailing doctrine. If you don't comply, your social circles will expel you. Your colleagues will shun you. And even your families will look at you as politically incorrect. You will eventually be treated as an enemy of law and order, and your conscience will be trampled like it's dust on the ground. How did we get to such a state of things? How quickly the principles that have held society together have been overthrown. We are on a slide to the bottom, and it's going very quickly. It is amazing how circumstances have changed for God's people. Whereas a few years ago, it seemed that everything was secure and that nothing would undermine religious liberty. But that has all changed now, and now these very principles of liberty and freedom are very insecure. I hope you have been paying attention to what has been happening. The pandemic has dealt a major blow to religious freedom. Not directly, but indirectly, through social media and the mainstream media, private actors and corporate giants, everything in life will turn against true Sabbath keepers. So let's look at the book of Acts and see what happened in the time of the early reign so that we may understand what happens under the Holy Spirit's power in the latter reign. When the Holy Spirit is present and working mightily, Satan is astir and will cause problems and difficulties for God's people. 
This tests their loyalty to see if they are really serious about their commitments or if they are half-hearted. Satan has just as much interest in this issue as God does. Stephen's experience is telling. Turn to the book of Acts, chapter 6. We'll read verse 1. In those days, when the number of disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews, because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. The first thing to notice is that the Holy Spirit was working because there was a great increase in the number of disciples or followers of Jesus. So the church had to become organized more formally. This would make their work more successful, and it would not tie down the apostles with the details of church administration. Look at verse 2 through 7. Then the twelve called the multitude of disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of priests were obedient to the faith. This must have made the enemy of mankind very unhappy to see all this organization and preaching of the word. Even many priests were obedient to the faith. This must have stirred the leaders of the Jewish church with anger, that even their own fellow priests were following Jesus. No doubt they decided to find someone to make an example. Verse 8, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Stephen, no doubt, was diligent and faithful in the discharge of his office as a distributor of the church's charity. But he did much more than that. He manifested uncommon ability and talents that were far beyond his station. And no doubt he was destined for greater things, so the church may have thought. This is what Acts of the Apostles tells us on page 97. Stephen, the foremost of the seven deacons, was a man of deep piety and broad faith. Though a Jew by birth, he spoke the Greek language and was familiar with the customs and manners of the Greeks. He therefore found opportunity to preach the gospel in the synagogues of the Greek Jews. He was very active in the cause of Christ and boldly proclaimed his faith. Learned rabbis and doctors of the law engaged in public discussion with him, 
confidently expecting an easy victory. But they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Not only did he speak in the power of the Holy Spirit, but it was plain that he was a student of the prophecies and learned in all matters of the law. He ably defended the truths that he advocated and utterly defeated his opponents. To him was the promise fulfilled. Settle it, therefore, in your hearts, not to meditate before what ye shall answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. Luke twenty-one fourteen and 15. This man was full of faith and power. That means he was strong in faith, and consequently he was also strong in power. Those that are full of faith are always full of power, because by faith the power of God is engaged. In fact, his faith so filled him that it left no room for unbelief and made room for the influences of divine grace. By faith we are emptied of self and are so filled with Christ who is the wisdom of God and the power of God. But Stephen had enemies that hated him. He became a target of the church leaders and they agreed that he should be put to death. They wanted to make an example of him so that others would fear to do the same thing. Stephen ably defended the Christian faith and pleaded the cause of Christianity against those that opposed it and argued against it. He was given ability to argue his points in the synagogues. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines and Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. These were Hellenist, or Greek Jews, Jews of the, the dispersion. They were more zealous for their religion than even the native Jews. They were sticklers for Judaism. Stephen was so effective in arguments for Christ that they were unable to counter the power that attended his words. Verse 10. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. They thought they could settle it with Stephen by disputing with him. But the scriptures say that they could not resist the wisdom of the spirit by which he spake. They thought they were only disputing with Stephen and could easily overcome him but they were disputing with the Spirit of God that spoke through him with such wisdom and power that they could not argue against him credibly. They were not an equal match for the Holy Spirit. But the arguments of Stephen did not convince them, neither did they want to be convicted by them. Even though Stephen's words were convincing and convicting, they rejected them. When they could not answer his arguments as a disputant, they prosecuted him as a criminal 
and hired witnesses and instructed them what to say against him. They wanted to attach blasphemy upon him. They were enraged because he had proved them to be wrong and showed them the right way. For that which they ought to have given him thanks, he became their enemy because he told them the truth and proved it to be so. So the same is true today. Those who speak truth to power will be treated as enemies and prosecuted as criminals. Religious liberty will be destroyed. The powers that be will have so much corruption to hide that anyone who exposes it will be condemned, yet Babylon will be exposed. The Jews did not have a concept of religious liberty where people could choose what they wished and believe and practice their faith based on serious debate. While the Romans controlled them, they could not legally execute Stephen. But they knew whom they could bribe among the Roman authorities to overlook the execution. So they stirred up the mob to create a tumult so they could blame the disruption on innocent Stephen. Anyway, how could the Romans prosecute a mob? Verse 11 through 15. Then they stubborn men, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses, which said, This man ceases not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all that sat in the council looked steadfastly upon him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Learned Jews from the surrounding countries had been summoned for the purpose of refuting the arguments of the prisoner. Saul of Tarsus was present and took a leading part against Stephen. He brought the weight of eloquence and logic of the rabbis to bear upon the case to convince the people that Stephen was preaching delusive and dangerous doctrines. But in Stephen, he met one who had a full understanding of the purpose of God in spreading the, of the gospel to other nations. Yet they played on the prejudices of the people in stirring them up, and they were very good at it. The people were ignorant of the plans of the church leaders. In their eyes, they were credible, respectable, and trustworthy. So if the leader said so, it must be true. The false witnesses made it appear that the leaders were right in condemning Stephen to death. The people went along with it because they believed what they saw at face value. This is always dangerous, especially when it comes to religious things. You can lose your salvation by taking the dominant narrative as fact. They feared losing their standing and didn't investigate the leader's statements. 
They didn't think that it was possible that the powerful leaders would lie to them or misrepresent the truth of the matter. Does all this sound familiar? In the post-truth era, this is the way it will go. People will think that what is said by government leaders, church leaders, or whoever they believe is credible, is fact. They will choose sides based on their fears of losing what they have come to believe is true, even though it is a patent lie. At the end of time, the people will be stirred up to persecute God's people. Listen to this from Selected Messages, Volume 3, page 416. Christ shows that without the controlling power of the Spirit of God, Humanity is a terrible power for evil. Unbelief, hatred of reproof, would stir up satanic influences. Principalities and powers, the rulers of darkness of this world, and spiritual wickedness in high places will unite in a desperate companionship. They will be leagued against God in the person of his saints. By misrepresentation and falsehood, they will de- demoralize both men and women who, to all appearances, believe the truth. False witnesses will not be wanting for the, in this terrible work. Imagine having lived a lie for so long that you now believe it is truth, and then you find out what the truth really is, and it's too late to do anything about it. We can see this being played out now to some degree. Let me give you an example with huge consequences on the way society acts. America was established as a republic based on the rule of law and limited government. Its institutions protected the minority opinion. This protected the freedom of everyone. But for many years now, America's leaders and the mainstream media have been promoting the idea that America is a democracy. That is quite a different thing from a republic. Democracy is the rule of the majority under the cover of the rule of law. Mob rule, in other words. It's only a matter of time until it descends into mob rule without law and order. In a democracy, the government becomes bigger and bigger until it becomes a leviathan. But the most important thing about a democracy is that the minority opinions are not protected. If you hold a minority opinion, you can be canceled, isolated, marginalized, and censored. In other words, persecuted. This means that there is only liberty for the dominant narrative. In some communist countries, you can be executed for holding minority opinions. Think of Christianity in North Korea, for example. But even in Muslim countries, there are social and legal disadvantages for being a Christian. Religious freedom in a democracy really doesn't exist. It's only toleration. And when your religious idea is no longer tolerated, you are persecuted 
and you're a persecuted minority. And it is all justified by the concept that your ideas harm others or society at large. I have even heard that recently about certain medical ideas or convictions. Haven't you? America and countries around the world have changed the way they understand the truth. Now lies are accepted as fact, and there is no one in the mainstream that is willing to check out the statements that are made. If the dominant narrative says that dogs don't bark, you must not adopt a view that dogs do bark. Otherwise, you will be canceled. But, you say, what is that barking noise that I hear? Well, that is just in your head. But, you respond, dogs used to bark. They don't anymore. Dogs are very peaceful and good for society. And if they were to bark, they would disturb the peace. So they don't bark. But, you say with frustration, I can't believe that dogs don't bark. Well, apparently you're a conspiracy theorist because if you say that dogs bark, then there must be a dark agenda going on to force peace and tranquility on society. And we can't have that. Peace and tranquility have to be voluntary. And you are trying to say that it is not. Therefore, you need to be medicated with psychotropic drugs so you don't imagine things that are false. Your views have to be censored because they will harm society. In fact, you will need to be locked up for a while so your ideas don't spread like the pandemic. Well, of course, this absurd dialogue can be applied to any number of issues today. Medical, religious, whistleblowers, etc. But rest assured that a democracy will inevitably become the dictatorship of the majority. The leaders want this because the majority can be manipulated through fear to do what they want them to do. The church leaders in Stephen's day used this principle to condemn him before the people. They also used it in Christ's day to condemn him. And not surprisingly, these tactics will be used against God's people in the last days. Back to Stephen, verse 12 through 14. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council, and set up false witnesses, which said, This man ceases not to speak blasphemous words against the holy, this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. So this stirred up the people against him. Just in case the Sanhedrin didn't fulfill their wishes, they could let him be run down by the tumult of a mob. They also found a means to stir up the elders and scribes against him. That's the dignitaries of the state and the lawyers, so that if the people should protect him, they might prevail by their authority. They thought they 
would surely gain their object. They wanted to make him out as a dangerous man, so they treated him rudely. Notice that they came upon him as if when he least expected it. They thought that they would gain sympathy of the people if they would take him by surprise and rather roughly. So they caught him as if they were trying to prevent his escape and triumphantly brought him to the council. He could have no friends to support or help him and encourage him, and they weren't going to give him justice. They wanted to isolate and bewilder him, if possible. When they had brought many of their sympathizers together, they were emboldened by one another and strengthened one another's hands. Notice, too, that they could not afford to be unprepared as they were when they brought Jesus to his trial and then had to seek for witnesses. They were ready beforehand and they were instructed to make oaths that they had heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God, against this holy place and the law. They misrepresented his words and accused him of things he did not do. Remember, Satan hates liberty, especially religious liberty, and he is just as much an inveterate enemy of religious liberty today as he was back in the days of Stephen. And he is doing everything he can to undermine freedom and liberty. And he will co-opt many church-going people to help him destroy liberty. Look at verse 13. He ceases not to speak blasphemous words. It was his common talk, his discourse in all companies. He makes it his business to instill his notions into all he converses with. If it were today, Stephen would be posting continually on social media with profound impact. These false witnesses put a wrong and malicious construction upon what he had said and perverted it. They tried to appear as if they had a deep concern for the honor of God's name and that they were jealous for his reputation. But they dishonored God by breaking his law, by bearing false witnesses, and with hatred and malice in their hearts. They were about to martyr Stephen. Thus it is with all true followers of Christ. They are hated by their own brethren and often cast out. There is no such thing as religious liberty when hatred rules the mob. They will do what they have to do to silence the voice of reproof. Did Christ's followers ever blaspheme Moses or the law or God himself? Of course not. They were always quoting Moses with respect. They said no other things than what Moses predicted would happen. Very unjustly, therefore, was Stephen indicted for blasphemy. The very evidence was minuscule and relied on twisted meanings of words, and it was based only on hearsay. Don't expect it to be any different at the end of time.
you will be condemned on hearsay. But I'm especially impressed by verse 15. And all that sat in the council looked steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. God made it appear that he stood by Stephen in the hour of his trial. It is common for judges to observe the countenance of a prisoner, which sometimes is an indication of either of guilt or innocence. When Stephen appeared with the countenance of an angel, it was so bright that some in the council hid their faces from it. But the leaders were not shaken, and their hearts were hardened even more. Stephen had not the least sign of fear in his face. It only showed his innocence. His extraordinary pleasant and cheerful countenance under these circumstances was amazing. He did not show anger at his persecutors. He looked as if he was most pleased to be in among the assembly to give his testimony for Jesus. There was a miraculous splendor and brightness upon his countenance like that of the Savior when he was transfigured, or at least that of Moses when he came down from the mount. God designed that he would put honor on his faithful witness by showing him this way. This would also be a way of warning his persecutors and judges whose sin would be highly aggravated and would be without excuse. It was also laying the groundwork for Saul, the greatest champion of the faith, to be converted. Stephen was owned and possessed by God. The irony is that while they accused him of blaspheming Moses and showing disrespect for the law, God made his face shine like Moses to indicate that he was respected in heaven like Moses. May God help us to be like that. The high priest now calls upon him to answer for himself. He has no lawyer, no earthly representative to advocate for him, or who understood the nuances of the law. He could only rely on Christ to sustain him. Listen to chapter 7. Then said the high priest, Are these things so? How do you plead, guilty or not guilty? This carried a show of fairness, but it was anything but a real trial, for these men and judges had judged him already, and they were prejudiced against his cause. A fair judge would have asked for some solid evidence to support the accusations against him, but he was going to be judged a blasphemer, whatever he may offer in justification or explanation. Verse 2, And he said, Men, brethren, and fathers, hearken, the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran. Stephen is respectful. He addresses them as men, brethren, and fathers, though by this time they were anything but brethren. They had rejected Christ, so they could not be his brethren, in the real sense of the word. But he was 
humble, meek, and respectful. He doesn't want anything to get in the way of the conviction of the Holy Spirit upon them. And being that Stephen was mighty in the scriptures, he began by rehearsing the history of the patriarchs and how God had delivered Israel from Egypt and brought them to Canaan. Stephen was not a novice in the word of God. This was an important lesson for us. If we expect the Holy Spirit to guide us as we defend the truth before the courts of law and justice and before dignitaries of church and state, we have to be muddy in the scriptures. He rehearses this history because he wants to point out that God had a church long before this holy place or even the ceremonial law was given. He points out that God was guiding Abraham long before he was circumcised, and that Abraham believed God by faith, not by the works of the flesh. That was an important point to these hardened Jews. They were proud of their being circumcised. He also points out that they better not be proud because they came out of the Ur of the Chaldees, where your fathers served other gods. But he doesn't just rehearse the history. Everyone in the court knew the history, at least the facts of history. But Stephen applies the history and shows them that they started from very humble circumstances and they should not be arrogant. Stephen is trying to show them that the Jewish nation, for the honor of which they were so jealous, was very inconsiderable at its beginnings. Their father Abraham was fetched out of obscurity, and their tribes, the heads of which were fetched out of slavery in Egypt when they were the fewest of all people. See Deuteronomy 7, 7. Maybe they caught his meaning. The God who could fetch them out of Egypt could easily send them back to Egypt or Babylon, which is in the Ur of the Chaldees, or anywhere else he deemed necessary. So Stephen takes them on a long discourse. He shows them the many embarrassments and wickedness of their fathers to try to make them see that their haughtiness and their pride is highly misplaced. Then in verses 47 through 51 he says, But Solomon built him an house. Howbeit, the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What house will ye build me, saith the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Hath not my hand made all these things? He shows plainly that the temple and its services must come to an end, and that Christ is the fulfillment of these things. By this time he can see that the rage on their faces and that his words would not be tolerated much longer. Acts of the Apostles, page 100, has this to say about what happened when Stephen reached this point in the presentation. When Stephen reached this point, there was a tumult among the people. When he connected Christ with the prophecies and spoke as he did of the temple, the priest pretended to be horror-stricken, rent his robe. 
To Stephen, this act was a signal that his voice would soon be silenced forever. He saw the resistance that met his words, and he knew that he was giving his last testimony, although in the midst of his sermon he abruptly concluded it. Notice that the emphasis was on prophecy. Prophecy was a key point that Stephen was giving because Christ was the fulfillment of prophecy. This was not the politically correct way to present prophecy, and today prophecy must be just as central to the message that we must present, and it is or will be just as politically incorrect. In verses 52 and 53, Stephen turned upon his enraged judges and said, Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. Stephen, under the Spirit of God, told him that the power and tyranny must come down, that the church must be governed by a spirit of holiness and love and heavenly-mindedness, the church must be stripped of the pompous ceremonies of that old ceremonial law. He told them that they, like their fathers, were stubborn and willful, and that will not be worked upon by the Holy Spirit to reclaim and reform them. They, like their fathers, were inflexible both to the word of God and to his providences. They, like their fathers, were not only not influenced by the methods God took to reform them, but they were enraged and incensed against him. They had resisted the Holy Ghost, speaking to them by the prophets whom they opposed and contradicted and hated and ridiculed. They, like their fathers, persecuted and slew those whom God sent to them to call them to repentance so they could receive mercy. They, like their fathers, put contempt upon divine revelation and would not be guided or governed by it. And this aggravated their sin. God had given their fathers his law and now his gospel in vain. They would not yield to the plainest demonstrations any more than their fathers before them did. For they were resolved not to comply with God either in his law or his gospel. Verse 54 to 60. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God, and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, and stopped their ears, and ran upon him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city, and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet, whose name was Saul. And they stoned Stephen, calling upon God, and saying, 
Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Listen to the Acts of the Apostles, page 100 and 101. At this, priests and rulers were beside themselves with anger. Acting more like beasts of prey than human beings, they rushed upon Stephen, gnashing their teeth. In the cruel faces about him, the prisoner read his fate, but he did not waver. For him, the fear of death was gone. For him, the enraged priests and the excited mob had no terror. The scene before him faded from his vision. To him the gates of heaven were ajar, and looking in, he saw the glory of the courts of God, and Christ, as if risen from his throne, standing ready to sustain his servant. In words of triumph, Stephen exclaimed, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. As he described the glorious scene upon which his eyes were gazing. It was more than his persecutors could endure, stopping their ears that they might not hear his words, and uttering loud cries, they ran furiously upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city. No legal sentence had been passed upon Stephen, and in the end, God's people, stripped of their religious liberty and freedom, will also be treated like Stephen was. The courts will not pass legal sentence on them either. They will just be condemned to death. Yet God will defend them. After the close of probation, not one saint will lose his life. Listen to this from the book Great Controversy, page 615. A decree will finally be issued against those who hallowed the Sabbath of the Fourth Commandment, denouncing them as deserving of the severest punishment and giving the people liberty after a certain time to put them to death. There will be no courts of justice, no legal sentence, no due process, no trial by jury, nothing. Only an unfair and illegitimate death sentence. Friends, these are the scenes that will be repeated from history in the last days. Under the latter reign, the Holy Spirit will manifest in muddy ways, but satanic agencies will be strong too and manifest themselves in forceful and furious ways. So it will be a time of great trouble and conflict but God's people will look to heaven for their peace. I want to be in that company, few though they may be, that overcomes the devil through the power of Jesus Christ. Don't you? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we are so weak and so unready for the crisis. Please make us ready so that we are able to stand with Christ by our side throughout the end-time crisis. May we have your Spirit to guide us and lead us in the right way. And may Jesus and the prophecies be more real to us than they have ever been before. In Jesus' name, Amen. 
We hope you have been greatly blessed by this month's message. Your prayers and gifts mean much to us. Thank you so much for your support. The song you have just heard is called I Am Determined, sung by Jennifer Buttery. It is recorded on a CD with other beautiful hymns called Seekers of Your Heart. If you would like a copy of the CD, just send $16 postpaid and we will gladly send you one. International listeners should send $20 USD. Be sure and mention the Seekers of Your Heart CD. The following is our prophetic intelligence briefing, a feature that brings you current events in the light of prophecy, especially for those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. 
We can see the signs of the times telling us that we are nearing the world's great crisis and the coming of the Lord. May the Lord find us faithful. Our first item this month. Get ready for a rare triple dip La Nina. We're about to see the first triple dip La Nina of the century. Spanning three consecutive Northern Hemisphere winters, the World Meteorological Organization, WMO, predicts. The organization issued a forecast today warning of the unusual turn of events. The current La Nina, a weather pattern that can drive severe weather, will likely persist over the next six months into 2023. Quote, It is exceptional to have three consecutive years with a La Nina event, WMO Secretary General Petri Talas said in a press release. The phenomenon is expected to continue fueling bad weather across far-flung corners of the world. La Nina typically shows up every two to seven years, usually lasting a year or less. It unfurls across the Pacific Ocean, but its effects can be felt across the globe. Along with El Niño, it's one of the extreme phases of the El Niño Southern Oscillation, ENSO, a recurring climate pattern. During a La Niña, unusually strong trade winds blow warm surface water from the Americas toward Asia. Then from the bottom of the sea, more cool water rises, leading to a cooling effect across the central and eastern tropical Pacific Ocean. The consequences of that phenomenon vary from region to region and are never quite the same each year, but La Nina usually has the opposite effects of an El Nino event. Australia tends to get more rain, for instance, while eastern Africa is usually drier than normal. This particular La Nina event started in September 2020. Since then, its hallmark has been seen in abnormal weather events around the world, according to Talas. That includes the longest drought in four decades to hit the Horn of Africa. Facing five bone-dry rainy seasons in a row, more than 50 million people in seven countries stretching across eastern Africa, from Eritrea down to Kenya and Somalia, are expected to experience food insecurity this year, according to a United Nations-backed report. The latest La Nina forecast confirms that the ongoing drought will continue to worsen, Tala said. In Australia, on the other hand, La Nina fed record rainfall. Last week, rain gauges in Sydney recorded over 2 meters, 6.56 feet of rain since the start of this year. It's the first time the city has hit that mark this early in the year, since record-keeping began 164 years ago. Severe flooding has plagued parts of New South Wales, where Sydney is the state capital, throughout the year. Climate change is also at play when it comes to more extreme weather events, whether that's drought, flood, or La Nina. Research points to extreme La Nina and El Nino events becoming twice as frequent to about once every decade, by the end of the century as global temperatures rise. The WMO forecast a 70% chance of this La Nina sticking around through September to November of this year. There's a 55% chance of it persisting from December 2022 to February of next year. Quote, 
the restraining spirit of God is even now being withdrawn from the world. Hurricanes, storms, tempest, fire and flood, disasters by sea and land follow each other in quick succession. Science seeks to explain all these. The signs thickening around us, telling of the near approach of the Son of God, are attributed to any other than the true cause. Men cannot discern the sentinel angels restraining the four winds that they shall not blow until the servants of God are sealed. But when God shall bid his angels loose the winds, there will be such a scene of strife as no pen can picture. Testimonies to the Church, Volume 6, page 408. Next, Great Reset. Macron warns this age of abundance must come to an end to save the planet. After a summer marked by drought, massive wildfires, and the war in Ukraine, French President Emmanuel Macron delivered a stark speech on Wednesday at the first cabinet meeting following the summer holiday break, warning of tough months ahead as the world faces a possible end of abundance. Quote, I believe that we are in the process of living through a tipping point of great upheaval. Firstly, because we are living through what could seem like the end of abundance, said Macron, 44. The speech appeared designed to prepare the country for what promises to be a difficult winter ahead, with energy prices rising sharply and families struggling with inflation. The moment we are living may seem to be structured by a series of crises, each more serious than the other, Macron said, referring to the drought, fires, and storms that have hit France during the summer as well as the Ukraine war and disruptions to global trade. Freedom has a cost, Macron said, urging his ministers to be ambitious and the French to accept new policies adapted to current circumstances. The battles we have to fight will only be won through our efforts. Government spokesman Olivier Veran said that the cap on energy prices, which has helped households cope with soaring inflation, could not continue indefinitely. Gas prices in France are currently frozen and there is a cap on energy price hikes. But the billion euro price cap is set to expire at the end of the year. This has helped keep French inflation lower than the rates experienced by many of its EU peers, but the measures weigh heavily on the public purse. The government will present legislation in September to speed up energy infrastructure projects and hammer out a short-term plan to secure energy supplies for the winter, Veran said. France is also working on an energy restraint plan that Macron said in July would ask all citizens to commit to saving energy, including such practices as turning off lights when leaving offices. France is less reliant than some EU neighbors on gas imports from Russia, which account for about 17% of its gas consumption, but concerns about supply nevertheless remain. Macron's warning is a secular look at what is happening on a global scale. But the Bible predicted this 2,000 years ago. Now it's here, and it's going to get worse, a lot worse. Quote, we are standing on the threshold of the crisis of the ages. In quick succession, the judgments of God will follow one another. Fire and flood and earthquake with war and bloodshed. We are not to be surprised at this time by events both great and decisive, 
For the angel of mercy cannot remain much longer to shelter the impenitent. Prophets and Kings, page 278. Quote, and there shall be signs in the sun and in the moon and in the stars and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity the sea and the waves roaring. Luke 21:25. Next, France used Google AI tech find tax evaders. Using AI technology developed by Google and Cape Gemini, French tax authorities have spotted 20,000 undeclared pools in private properties, landing owners with bills amounting to approximately 10 million euros. In France, property modifications, including swimming pools, have to be declared to the tax office within 90 days of completion because property taxes are based on the value of the property. According to La Parisienne, a 30 square meters pool could result in an extra 200 euro property tax annually. The AI technology can spot pools from aerial images. The project was launched in 2021 as a test in several French departments and spotted 20,356 pools. The tax office said on Monday that the system will be used across the country. However, the technology is not perfect. In April, it was reported that the Google Capgemini software had a margin of error of 30%. The system made mistakes like mistaking solar panels for pools and it cannot pick up pools that are hidden by shadows of buildings and under trees. The tax office said it wants to use the technology to spot other taxable modifications like verandas and annexes. Quote, we are particularly targeting house extensions like verandas. But we have to be sure that the software can find buildings with a large footprint and not the dog kennel or the children's playhouse. Antoine Manier, the deputy director general of public finances, told Le Parisien newspaper. It is not clear how that would work because from the aerial images, the system cannot tell if a rectangular shape is actually an extension or just a tenant or something placed on the ground. Will AI and satellite imagery be used to detect illegal religious meetings, perhaps? Who needs people to inform when you have AI? Quote, measures were at once taken for the arrest of every Lutheran in Paris. A poor artisan, an adherent of the Reformed faith, who had been accustomed to summon the believers to their secret assemblies, was seized and with the threat of instant death at the stake, was commanded to conduct the papal emissary to the home of every Protestant in the city. The demonstration was ostensibly in honor of the Holy Sacrament, an act of expiation for the insult put upon the Mass by the protesters. But beneath this pageant a deadly purpose was concealed. On arriving opposite the house of a Lutheran, the betrayer made a sign, but no word was uttered. The procession halted, the house was entered, the family were dragged forth and chained, and the terrible company went forward in search of fresh victims. They spared no house, great or small, not even the colleges of the University of Paris. Morin made all the city quake. It was a reign of terror. Great Controversy, page 225. Next, remember the Sabbath day. 
Northern Ireland's biggest Protestant church voices worries over Sunday football as Linfield gets ready to clash with Portadown. It comes ahead of a string of fixtures due to take place on Sabbath days in the weeks ahead. The Irish League's new season started last night with a clash between Larne and Glentoran at Inver Park, and the fixture list for August includes three Sunday fixtures. Though football has taken place on Sundays before in Northern Ireland, not least the Cliftonville vs. Coleraine League Cup Final on March 13th won by the former, it remains exceedingly rare. The three upcoming Sunday games are Linfield vs. Club Logo Portadown, 3pm August 14th, Newry City vs. Linfield, 2pm August 21st, Carrick Rangers vs. Linfield, 2pm August 28th. The reason given by Linfield is that the club has commitments to play in Europe throughout the month, causing scheduling problems. Asked for its stance on games being scheduled for Sundays, a spokesman for the Presbyterian Church in Ireland told the newsletter, quote, The last time the General Assembly of our church directly considered such issues was in 2008. On that occasion, it was in response to the Irish Football Association's decision to permit football matches on a Sunday. On that occasion, the General Assembly passed the following resolution. Quote, that in light of the decision of the IFA to allow competitive football on Sundays, the General Assembly expressed concern about professional sporting events which hinder or diminish attendance of Sunday worship, thus interfering with Christian practice as an established aspect of societal life. We recognize that attitudes in society in relation to sporting and other events on Sundays have continued to evolve and that they are more commonplace today. Nonetheless, the position of our church remains unchanged. It is important that as far as possible, those making decisions on sporting fixtures take account of both the views of those players who may not wish to participate and also of those supporters who may feel excluded by regular Sunday fixtures. Back in 2021, when it was revealed the League Cup Final would be on a Sunday, NI Football League boss Gerard Lawler said, Quote, I am aware this is the first time a major domestic final will be played on a Sunday in Northern Ireland, but we have to continually evolve and look to what has worked for other major sporting events. Quote, Paul states plainly that the man of sin will continue until the second advent, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3-8. To the very close of time, he will carry forward the work of deception. And the revelator declares, also referring to the papacy, all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life. Revelation 13.8 In both the old and the new world, the papacy will receive homage in the honor paid to the Sunday institution that rests solely upon the authority of the Roman Church. Great Controversy, page 578 Unfortunately, our time is up. Remember, there are more prophetic intelligence briefings on our website at ktfnews.com. It's been a great pleasure to spend this time with you. I hope you have been encouraged to live for Jesus, for we are near the end. Remember that God has a plan for your life and that right now you can make a new start with Jesus. Thank you for your prayers and support. And until next time, may God bless and keep you and your family in His loving and protecting care. 
keep the faith.